Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate! Demons list out! After what, Sidney? Come on! There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur fossils? Now let's put those here to test our faith. A damn lie! I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did illusions, man! None of it is true! I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! So, welcome back to the Deep Share podcast. And this is part three of my witness series focusing on perturbed states of consciousness. My first roundtable on this subject covered paranormal activity, which was really great, really surprisingly connected to these themes. That I, and I was very excited about that. The second roundtable we did was focused on alien encounters, visitation, and abductions, which was, in my opinion, quite central to these topics and now with part three we're here with focusing on near-death experiences and oddly enough I have never had a a, a near-death experience myself per se of course I know that there's uh, a lot of different definitions for one and uh, I got my inspiration in this kind of field from my psychedelic experiences and i've heard many of you guys speak on this topic and have had all the hairs on my body stand up when you've told certain stories about near-death experiences that related deeply to some of the the motifs and the the feelings and ideas that came with a lot of my psychedelic experiences so i really wanted to explore this topic in particular. And tonight with me, I'm honored to have Dr. Raymond Moody, Dr. Mary Helen Hensley, and Mr. Howard McCoskey. How's it going, everybody? All good. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. That's great. And we are supposed to have Lindsay Sharman of the Rogue Ways podcast joining us, but maybe she's running a little bit late. I'm not sure what's going on there, but she'll jump in if she's coming. But um, let's jump right into it. Um, I wanted to, first off, thank you guys for being a part of this. This has been a really uh, enlightening idea that I've had here. Uh, It's been really interesting to find all the different stories and how well they correlate together from such vastly different paths. But I've always kind of felt like there's a unified field of some sort along these lines. And, and, obviously in the center of it is consciousness. And I would love for us to, to share some stories 
and ask some questions and just have a good conversation here about this topic of near-death experience. So that being said, um, Raymond, it's so good to talk to you and, and meet you. And I would love to hear and, my, and if my audience could get a little bit of background into how you're associated with the near-death experience and how it's affected your perception and perspective on reality and, and life. Okay, well, um, I guess I should start by saying that when I was a kid, astronomy was my thing. I was, I built my first telescope when I was seven or eight. And um, at the same time, when I was fascinated by astronomy, concurrently, I was also fascinated by Lewis Carroll and Dr. Seuss and nonsense writing in general. So I went to the University of Virginia at age 18 with no you know, the idea of an afterlife, I just thought that was a humor that people, I really never had any notion that anybody took it seriously, other than a, a cartoon. And um, so I went to UVA BA, intending to be a, uh, an astronomy major, and took a philosophy course right away. And uh, just within the first couple of days of that philosophy course, I was hooked. So I ended up majoring in philosophy and getting a PhD in philosophy eventually, and then um, being a professor of philosophy before I went to medical school. So the way this all came about was uh, my first semester at UVA in 1962, reading Plato's Republic. Um, <clears throat> just in the first couple of pages of the Republic, I was hooked on Plato. I mean, he's still kind of my hero. And um, the 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 um, the Republic is about um, the underworld. It's it's about the relationship of the um, concept of justice to the notion of an afterlife, and it culminates in this experience at the end of this warrior who was believed dead, but revived and came back to tell his. Um, colleagues, you know, these stories of going into another place. So I remember asking Professor Hammond specifically about that because it's so bizarre to me. And he said, yeah, that these early Greek philosophers studied cases of people who were revived after almost dying. And, um, and he said that there was a debate about them. Plato took them seriously as indicators of an afterlife. But meanwhile, Democritus, who was a little bit before Plato, not just a few decades before Plato. He wrote about these things too, but he said, there's no such thing as a moment of death and all this is, is the residual biological activity of the body. So, you know, they set the debate we still have. And so that, I was interested in that. And then three years later, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at UVA, who had had this experience. And that's uh, immediately, that was in 1965. I just immediately uh, took a liking to George Ritchie and his story changed my life. Since then, I've interviewed thousands of people from all over the world. So that's how it got started for me. I'm not having any interest in parapsychology or uh, I don't think that in 2021, the notion of an afterlife is not yet a scientific question. It's a very profound and important philosophical question, but it's not yet a scientific question because there's no coherent way that you could put this notion to a test and confirm or disconfirm it. 
that's however i will say i mean i'm not number one i would have no interest in persuading anybody else but at the same time people are interested in what i think for whatever reason and i don't mind saying that yeah i've just reached a point where i'm boxed into a corner i mean i don't know what else to say except that to my utter astonishment and it's still very counterintuitive to me it's not a belief in the sense of something i've internalized it's just something i've been forced into in a way so that's um that's my story with near-death experience but the the more important story is <laughs> the interest in philosophy that this came from which i plainly say in my book life after life that near the very beginning i say that I come into this from the point of view of logic and philosophy of language, and those are the real deal. That's where the action lies in this, is um, uh, because David Hume, the great uh, Scottish skeptic, um, uh, pointed out accurately, and if you think this through, as, as I say the words, you'll say he was right. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And that really, you know, he meant it to be kind of conclusive, like it can't be. But what I say is it can be. And um, uh, since I was in graduate school, really, and a philosophy professor. I've been working on my logic of how to think about things that are unintelligible. Not trying to sell a book, folks, is, but if you're interested, this is a, it's a, a learning system I developed over the years to teach students how to think logically about things that don't make sense. And when you incorporate that, then subsequently you happen to have a near-death experience then that will affect your knowledge will affect the way you will express it which has already happened once an eminent artist and scientist who took one of my workshops several years later had h1n1 lost his leg to gangrene 60 days in the hospital several cardiac arrests but he called me and he said in during the conversation he said and raymond you he said i while I was over there, I went back in my mind to the nonsense seminar I had with you, and I, and I saw that what you're saying is true, that you can't comprehend how that world is connected to this world unless you take the unintelligibility axis into account. Now, what this means in reality is that, you know, have you ever thought of that? People say all the time this 4.3 light years to Alpha Centauri. Mm -hmm. Have you ever stepped back a minute to say, well, how did they figure that one out? You can't send a homing pigeon out there, right? So right. Um, what by in the mid 19th century, they've gotten the measurements close enough where if you think about the Earth being in 186 million mile orbit around the Earth, then when the uh, Earth was here in its orbit. They measured the angle to certain nearby stars, waited exactly six months later till the Earth was on the opposite side, measured the angle again, and you could see that's called parallax. Now we have, so you can calculate the distance out there. Now we have the same, uh, same system with uh, how to think about things that don't make sense. And it's not just life after life, it's a lot of things. Uh, so that's basically where I am, but it's, um, 
You know, it's so premature to talk about this as a scientific question, in my opinion. It's mm. a conceptual question. But the neat thing about that is the conceptual question can be worked out. <laughs> and yeah. um, I want to claim I've done it. And, and if anybody can find a hole in my logic, please let me know, because that would bring me closer to the truth, right? Absolutely. But thus far, I've given this book to many, many very brilliant people, none of whom are interested in the afterlife, but are just professors of business, professor of psychology, professor of logic, it's just a lot of folks. And they all say that it's, you know, that it's valid. So, um, you know, the whole interest in this field, though, is narrative based, right? right. People love to hear stories, but it, most of them, when you try to start talking concepts, their eyes roll up in their head. But but as long as that's the case, then we're never going to get an enlightenment on this. Because by by staying entirely on the narrative levels, uh, level focusing on the stories, which we all love the stories. I'm not saying anything bad here. I can't wait to hear the next one, <laughs> though I've heard thousands of them. But what I'm getting at is that, he, as Plato pointed out in his Phaedo, even if you had a bazillion stories, it wouldn't add up to a rational proof of an afterlife. Mm. You need some set of concepts. Yeah, so we that, need to be able to bring something back from that experience significant right. enough. Uh, and that, yeah, that, something like that possibly couldn't happen. I, I, yeah, and you, uh, your focus on Plato is great. And that's what turned me on to your work originally because mm -hmm. my psychedelic experience is the first literary thing I thought about when I came back from my very first psilocybin experience was Plato's cave and the experience of that. And then of course, all the cultural references started pouring into my head, like the matrix and everything else that, right. you know, the matrix is a very interesting parallel to Plato's cave, of course, as well. And this experience, it, it, it connected me to Plato's work in that way. And I, and I really appreciate your focus on it as well. Uh, Mary, I love that I get to meet you finally. This is great. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, I am just honored to be here. And um, your work has been really inspiring for me as well. And I'd love for my audience to get a glimpse into your background and your connection to this as well. Well, thank you. Just jump on in. Yeah, jump on in. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, <laughs> Dr. Moody, this is so interesting because I live in Ireland, but I'm from Virginia. Oh. And um, Martinsville. Martinsville. All right. Cool. Yes. And uh, Shenandoah Valley. Yeah, yeah. I had a farm over in Highland County. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful neck of the woods. Oh, that's the most beautiful place in the world, I think. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah. Ireland, though, is pretty close. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> But I was able so to visit Ireland. Is, I'll go ahead. Yes. What's that? Say again. I was able to visit Ireland a few years back, and I, yeah, I can't wait to go back. I want to bring my son as soon as possible. Oh, it's magic. Well, the door is open. The door is always open. <laughs> yes. But what's so interesting is that um, my grandfather, Dr. Garland Clark, was a surgeon in uh, Winchester, Kentucky, and his wife Elizabeth, um, my grandmother. Um, they were just a really interesting, very neat couple. And he ended up, he worked with Edgar Casey, and, um, you know, really interesting um, history there. But what's so funny is that my grandmother was driving 
this would have been back in the 60s, um, early 60s, actually. And she was driving from Kentucky to Virginia. And she got this overwhelming urge to pull the car over and just start to pray. And she pulled the car over. She starts to pray. And the radio said, uh, you know, she knew what time it was. And she was actually driving back to Kentucky. And she pulls over, prays, focuses on my grandfather. She doesn't know why. She's just completely overtaken by the feeling. So she gets back and finds out that back in those days, remember doctors kept all of the, kept all the, the pills and the good stuff in the actual doctor surgery, you know, and my, my grandfather had been robbed at gunpoint at the exact time that my grandmother had pulled over and you interviewed her. Wow. Uh, yeah, she died. She died in 19, um, when did I move to Ireland? I guess 1995, I suppose. And you interviewed her many, her, many, many years ago. So we've been, I, you've been a name in my household for a very, very long time. Well, thank you so much. That's so sweet. So it, it's quite the honor to come back and because I've heard that story since I was a child and um, that same grandmother, uh, my father used to laugh when she'd come to visit because they loved each other like a mother and mother-in-law and son-in-law, as you can imagine. He liked to see her coming and he liked to see her going. Oh my God. <laughs> one morning she walked in, she was due to fly back to Kentucky and she, or actually she was flying to Florida and she just walks into the kitchen. We're all sitting there eating and I was very small and she picks up the phone, makes a phone call. Yes, this is Elizabeth Clark. And I am, I'm going to be changing my flight to tomorrow. And my father nearly choked on his breakfast. And he's, what, what? And hadn't my grandfather come to her in her sleep? And he walked to her on, and she was sitting on the plane. And he walked up to her and he put out his hand. And he always called her Elizabeth, honey. And he said, Elizabeth, honey, take my hand. This is not your flight. And walked her off. And she so deeply trusted that connection that she walked in, she changed her flight. And that flight actually went down um, mm. over the, uh, what's the big swamp in Florida? Um, oh my called? goodness. Yeah. So, what is the name of that? Okifinoki. That's it. Wow. Yeah. He was, she was meant to be on that plane. And so, yeah, so it's, it's just, it's very special to me that you got to, uh, uh, wow. in your many thousands of people that you interviewed, but um yeah, yeah so my story is um you know i'm a, a preacher's kid from virginia and my father was a southern baptist minister and um i just came in a little bit different um he had <laughs> what he called a celestial visit when my mother was pregnant with me she had the german measles in the first trimester and so that would have been 1968 when mm -hmm. they were called in and said just get prepared um, this is, and she was already in her forties and this is not going to go well. And so they had to go home and, and, and accept the inevitable. Um, and my father had what he called a celestial visit, which was very unusual for a Southern Baptist minister to call anything a celestial visit as opposed to an angelic visit, but mm. he didn't know what to say because they weren't angels and they didn't have wings. And so in the course of this visit, and this would be very out of character for him. Uh, during the course of this visit, they said that 
his daughter would not only be okay, but she was going to come in and have some very unusual life experiences. And so sure enough, I was born, no complications. And I was four years old when my father sat me down and, you know, he was that, that, that big booming minister's voice and he was a football coach. And, um, he sat me down he said, sugar, do you know the difference between alive and dead? I was four. And I said, you know, what? And my grandfather judge, who was my best friend in the world. And he came to me every single night we talked and, and I would tell my parents things that there's no way that I could have known. He died when I was one. And so by the time I was four, my father was cracking up because, and he just had to go, what is happening here? And what's so interesting is that as I've gotten older and I sit here 52 years later, um, and I look at this screen and you're trying as a child to explain something that is so real and so vivid to you that I'm looking at you and I'm presuming each and every one of you is sitting there in the flesh and blood somewhere. Yet all I see is a, a, a projected image that's just as real and it's happening in real time. And so for me as a child to try to explain to the grownups that when I would speak to judge um, that he was just as real, he might not be sitting in a flesh and blood body but that I was able to speak to him. Um, it, it made for a very interesting conversation in our household. And so I had these kind of abilities growing up. I would see things, I would dream things. And so I went on to college and the most I was doing with these extraordinary gifts was, you know, I was a cheerleader and I'd write the scores down to the basketball games and stick them in an envelope and go cheer at the game and come back and, and have a laugh with my friends that the score was right. This was the extent of my service to humanity. And so when I graduated from college, I moved to Charleston, South Carolina. And I was on my way to a Christmas party on the 14th of December, 1991. And this is where everything changed for me because I wasn't using what I came in with. I didn't know how really. And my parents had spent a lot of time trying to keep this quiet because you can imagine within their paradigm this was just earth shattering and it was it was very upsetting because it happened every single day and they couldn't deny it it was in their face so I am on my way to this party and I get to a intersection of highway 17 in Charleston which there's a lot of oncoming traffic going in both directions and I sit at a red light and I wait for my light to turn and I made it all the way across the lanes and next thing I look and there's a car barreling towards me. And there was an 81 year old gentleman who was driving a car and he hit the, you know, put the pedal to the metal because he was trying to run through the red light. And what was so fascinating at that moment was this is where my love and my understanding and my work with frequency came in because there was a sound. I love music. I play music here in Ireland and I love the sound of the Ilian pipes. Ilian means elbow in Irish. So it's a bagpipes that's played with the elbow and the low drone that that pipes make is the closest I could come to that the drone was like in that moment. And so I've since figured that this was the sound that kept me who I am tethered to the meat suit. And that sound takes place. And all of a sudden I realize, oh, I've done this before. Now, Again, Southern Baptists, I've never heard this in Sunday school, you can be sure. And I'm sitting in this moment where I feel completely in control of the way I'm going to ex exit my body. 
And it's so, it was so natural. It was so easy. There was no fear involved whatsoever. And I certainly wasn't clamoring to try and stay alive. It was just time to go. And so as that sound was playing, I start lifting out. And next thing I'm looking down. And just as I got into position to watch everything unfold beneath me, everything sped back up into real time. So I witnessed my own death. And so this car hit me 75 miles an hour. I was T-boned. I broke my neck. Um, my head went through the driver's side window. Um, it blew out all the rest of the windows in the car. And I'm literally watching this with just a kind of peculiar detached interest. And the best way I've ever been able to describe that moment to people is if you were outside and it was really, really hot and you were all sweaty and you'd been mowing the lawn or working in the garden and you came inside and you peeled off the clothes and you left them by the washing machine and went and had the best shower ever. The last thing you're thinking about is the clothes that are sitting next to the washing machine. And that was what it was like for me coming out of the body. I wasn't scrambling to trying to get back in. I didn't feel, oh my God, I've been cheated. I was only 22 years old. I, I just knew that I was going through my death process. But what I didn't realize was that I was very much in control of what was taking place. And so as I'm there and I'm witnessing what's happening below me, I'm very cognizant of the fact that as the car stopped and my head had gone through the window and the glass had shattered everywhere and my seat had folded up beneath me. And now people are starting to congregate around me. I saw a girl I went to college with a few cars behind. I saw the officer come up and reach through the passenger side and turn the car off so the engine wouldn't blow. Um, and I saw all sorts of things happening. And then the sound changed. So it went from that low kind of bagpipe drone into this most incredible symphony of sounds. Nothing I have ever looked for in all of, the, all of my years here. I've never been able to replicate it and boy, I've tried. Um, but this sound started to change and as the sound started to change, I began to change. And so now I'm no longer tethered to that experience where I'm watching myself beneath, I'm gone. And I think this is where a lot of people talk about the tunnel of light kind of experience. But for me, there was no tunnel. It was, I was here one second and then I was here. And when I landed into this space, it was like I was part of the atmosphere that was around me. And to make a very long story short, I was, I was greeted in that space by two beings who were my guardians, my guides. This is something new to me. I'd never even heard the terminology. Forget about it. The idea that I'd been around, that I was comfortable being dead because I'd done it before, reincarnation. I don't even think I'd ever heard the word before. And so suddenly I'm sitting in this space and the most incredible thing that happened to me there that I have such detail and vivid memory of is the fact that the atmosphere around me turned into what was like a 360 degree cinema and I was in the center of it and my perception of time in 3D space and time completely imploded in my face in that moment because I am now standing in my own life review my own experience but it's all happening concurrently simultaneously I'm two years old here while I'm 18 here while I'm 12 here I'm winning the spelling bee I'm getting raped while I'm at college I'm I'm eating my cereal as a three-year-old all of these things are happening at the same time. And you're, you know, as the preacher's daughter and recognizing that I've just come out of that mindset, I'm looking around and there's nobody judging this. I'm the one who's watching. 
and I'm looking and I'm critiquing my own performance, you know, with an artist eye, but with a compassion and sympathy that one could only understand when you step outside of your experience and the pain and the hardship that you may have been through, and you now become the observer of your own experience and the depth of appreciation in that moment for who I was, what I had endured, what I'd been through, what and what was to come. Because I also realized that I wasn't finished and nobody made that choice for me. Nobody pushed me back. Nobody told me you haven't finished what I did that. I'm suddenly really owning the idea that every single one of those experiences that I've just watched happen simultaneously, I created for myself. And the depth of growth that came with that, the understanding, the connection that I was that spiritual being already omnipotent, already that which I was seeking. And I was there to have that limited human experience. So I'd stuffed myself inside of the suit in order to see, you know, it's like playing a game of Monopoly. You know, you can't, you can't buy Park Place with a pink $500 bill. <laughs> but when you suspend your version of reality and you enter into that game with somebody else, willing participants, there's so much fun to be had and so much growth and so much competition and so much excitement because you're suspending one version of reality for another. And it all just clicked in that moment. And so back I came and, uh, get, you know, into a body that was pretty messed up, a broken neck and smashed up everything. And um, I learned my way out of that. And what has gotten me as far as I am in life now after, you know, with sustaining the amount of injury that I've had is I have a single question that I ask myself every day when I wake up is the pain I am in emotionally or physically bigger than what I came back here to do. Hmm. And the answer is always no. Absolutely. That's great. And, and I, uh, I love that you mentioned how you weren't interested and never even heard most of these, these oh, ideas God. before your experience. That was kind of like my experience with psychedelics in the sense that I was a baseball playing kid for most of my life. I even listened to most of the music my parents showed me growing up. You know, I was not sheltered, but just simple-minded, having a good time agreeable and then that happened to me with psilocybin and blew the doors open and suddenly i knew so much about occult language and symbolism and and all these philosophical ideas that i had never been in touch with in three-dimensional time and space at least from what i experienced at that point you know so i i love that these motifs kind of we just go around in circles they're they're so similar to one another howdy nice to meet you finally Glad, glad you can be here with us. Yeah, thanks. Good to have you. And uh, hi to everyone else. And uh, uh, Dr. Moody, I think I read one of your books, I'm going to say 22 years ago, when I mm -hmm. first began my work. So um, nice to say hello to you after reading your book. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. Now, Howdy, I was familiar with some of your work prior to finding out that you do have this incredible, interesting and unique connection to the death experience and, and near death experience. And I, I really wanted to, I'm glad that you could be here to throw your story into the mix because it's not, I mean, not that any of them are really standard, but I would say that there's a lot of standard things that have been reported and uh yours is pretty unique so please tell my audience yeah so um if we sort of try to do the overview of 
me even like two minutes, so we don't take up everyone's time. But um, a standard guy with a challenging life, uh, just a hockey player and a stand-up comedian guy who was enjoying life, had a an ex-girlfriend who was murdered when I was about 23 or 24. So I had my first experience into death right away. And it was it was actually the movement into everything that's taken place in my life was was her death without even realizing it. Um, things got so bad in my life by 97, I was in a really deep depression and, and was contemplating um, killing myself. And I just couldn't come up with a really good way to do it that wouldn't be messy for the person who's going to find me. And it was in that uh, depth of that that I wound up seeing a, a documentary on ancient, uh, on ancient Egypt pyramids. And uh, there was this change in my, in my uh, total experience that said, I have to I have to spend my life studying ancient Egypt and, and understanding the secret of, of what ancient Egypt was. So I had six years of intense work. I was lucky enough to spend time with a Zen monk from Korea. I had time with several native medicine men um, on reserves in Canada. I spent time with a, a Qigong doctor from Beijing and they put me through intense practice. I can just, I can say it's intense practice. Uh, in the middle of the intense practice, I had another death experience, not the one you know of, but that you've heard, but a different one, actually. And that one kind of revealed the nature of reality, you might say. Then I had the experience you were talking about in the 2005, after I'd written my first book on, on Egypt, um, and had an experience that pretty much turned all of the work and everything I've done completely on its head. Um, and at the same time, threw me into a combination of extreme clarity and extreme confusion and actual physical illness for about 10 years from it, because it was, it was difficult to deal with the ramifications of what the experience had, had shown and, and, and bringing that back into a physical form. Um, then in the last few years, uh, a book that was based on that experience and, and some other things came out, then the book you might also know on the because I've been studying uh, historical lies in the World's Fair. So it's nice to actually come onto a show now and not have to talk about the World's Fairs for once and not have to talk <laughs> about uh, history of the 1800s. So we're taking uh, a I break from that, that stuff on this show. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, so it's good to talk about something a little different. So um, do you, would you like me to share the death experience or do you want to have sure. is there something mean, you'd like to have questions before or I, I don't know, it's your show. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, let's, yeah, I would love to hear that particular experience from your perspective right here if you don't mind and then we can sure. jump we can all have a call we can all jump in and, yeah. and kind of jump it in yeah so it, it was it, it was very different from like i said i mean i'd read books like dr moody's and other books as as part of the of the course so for six years i've done intense work like 14 16 hours a day of everything you can think of from life recapitulations to uh overturning my life to sitting outside for four days straight to whatever practice I was given, you know, I did, and they were intense. And I thought I was pretty smart at this point. I thought I knew a lot about myself and reality. And then in 2005, I was out hiking with a friend in the uh, Canadian Rockies, and uh, we got too close to the waterfall at Johnson Canyon, and I slipped and fell into the uh, river. Um, at first, I realized, I mean, I did. I actually didn't know the waterfall was there. It's like the waterfall was just like literally five seconds from where the where I, where we fell in. We had no idea we were that close to that kind of danger. And I, in the early stages of this, it was just quite simple. I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm in deep water. I need to swim out. So I swam to my friend on the shore who was trying to find a way to get me out. And I grabbed his hand. And just as I grabbed his hand, he slipped and fell into the river at the same time. 
And the words that came out of my mouth specifically were, now we're in trouble. Because of course I realized my on land savior is, is in the water with me, I'm alone. Now things happen in microseconds. So this is similar to what Mary was talking about, the, the, how, how time began to slow down, right, in, intensely. And in the slowing down of the time was the realization of, oh, this is, this is how I'm going to die. Uh, and I found it extremely laughable that of all of the possible, of all the possibilities of how one would die, falling into a river and going over a waterfall was like, it was, it was so laughable. And there was this first, the first moment was a complete acceptance because I had no interest in needing to get back, needing to live, needing to do anything else. It was just, it was fine. I was, I was going to have, I'm going to die and I'm going to have front row seats to it. That's the best way I can describe it. But as that realization took place, there began to be a dropping away of everything I would ever have classified as me. So every single thing that could, I could ever say was me, thought, experience, memories, uh, hopes, fears, wishes, um, every single thing that could have been me was gone. And all that was left was, a, was the witnessing awareness of everything that was no longer, that was no longer non-local, it was no longer, um, it was no longer personal. It was just, it was just being witnessed. At the same moment that was happening, two things were occurring. So I'm still in the water. I'm still moving at, you know, at, in, you know, we're talking here in long stretches, which happened in microseconds in the water. Uh, next came what I would call bubbles of thought. And I don't call them thought because it was just bubbles of information that would come. They would burst in front of my screen of, of my, uh, like it burst in front of my awareness as like an image and everything would be understood. And then the next thing would come up and burst. At the same time, I was getting what I would classify, um, I classify now like a computer download. It was like a stick had been placed in my head and an absolute massive amount of information just got just sucked into me. And I've spent 15 years almost like just going through the internal um, computer system to find the uh, file folders that have been placed in there and figure out what the hell did the universe put in. In the midst of all this experience, then once everything had fallen away, I realized, um, wow, I'm false. Everything I'd ever believed myself to be is, is false. That it's a like I say, I'd had the previous death experience, which was partially helping to show that reality, the external world was not real at all, but I was still very real, right? That's one kind of the, this classic spiritual mistake. Mm -hmm. And um, now in the classic, the classic spiritual mistake, that was falling away, right? I'm not me either. I'm not me either. There's an awareness, but even that's not personal. It was my awareness was everyone's awareness or everything's awareness was the same, right? So as I realized, I actually... I'm not here, I'm, I'm not existing, I've never existed, but it's going through this experience now of dying. And it was, uh, it was the, so, this, so these moments of extreme clarity and yet at the same time, extreme downloading of materials, the best way I can describe it. I look back at my friend who I found later couldn't swim, but was somehow dog paddling in the water and, and wasn't, wasn't moving. I was being pushed by the water. I was being pushed at great speed and he was still. And I remember thinking just at that moment, the first real thought bubbles up. Well, if I don't get out of here, how is he going to get out? And at that moment, my, my leg slammed into a boulder, veered me off towards a little bit of where there was a shoreline. I began crawling out of the water 
And my first thought was, can I find a long branch, a long tree branch, so I can try to grab my, get to my friend. I'm, I'm screaming at him, of course. It's shallow here. You can get out. And as soon as I turned to, to see where he might be, he was walking out with me. And, and then we both sat there for a half an hour. We said nothing. We, and it was, it was beautiful to have this uh, person to share the experience with. And we've shared our experience with each other. We took a couple hours to tell our whole, de- I mean, I've given you the minor detail, right? We talked mm. for hours of our experience and it was very similar. Both of us went through almost the same experience. And then we, we walked out of the forest together, completely realizing that we had died. We were dead, that the person we thought we were is gone, that, that doesn't exist. Like the person you're talking to now is not anything, not the person who was there before. The person who was here, there before is is a, is a fictitious thing that's good. This is fictitious too, but it's a completely different fiction. And um, yeah, it was, I doubted the experience for a long time. I'll stop talking here in a moment and let of the conversation okay. begin. No but I, I, I doubted the experience for a long time because I had read so, so much literature on after-death experiences. I had had so many um, experiences, whether it be in sweat lodges, whether it be through shamanic journey, whether it be through various other shifting of reality that are more similar to what you might, what you had said, like the standard, more standard near-death experience. Mine was so um, different that mm. I doubted it for a long time. I, I doubted its, its validity and I doubted that it's, that it, the impact and, and, the, and the insight that it had. And that was part of the reason I spiraled into, I spiraled into illness because I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile what I had experienced with anything else out there that that was at that time was readable and it wasn't for five or six years later when I bumped in to some very specific material from a few people that validated the experience that I could finally say okay this is a real deal thing and this is um and it's okay to understand it and talk about it so I'll stop there and let let the conversation um go where everybody anybody wants to go with whatever they want to say about anything (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Then the one of the particular reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because hearing you tell that story, um, I had a similar experience under psychedelics in the sense that I didn't have a very good community around me at the time. It was back in the early, early 2000s. And online was kind of new. There wasn't a lot of support communities on there. And physically speaking, even the friends that I had taken these substances with didn't have the experiences that I did, which was mind boggling to me a lot of times. And I felt very isolated. So it sent me down a dark path for quite a while and away from what I could have been working on from these experiences. You know what I mean? So it's, it's good to have someone else on that kind of can relate to that for sure. And oddly enough, the experience you had was kind of the revelation I had and it has scared me and still scares me. And it's a, it's weird. I'm trying to reconcile it because I hear so many people talk positively about that beautiful unity that you're talking about. And so many stories involve that interconnected oneness and my goodness, is it just my inner child, my, my ego telling me, no, I want my stuff. I want my experience. That experience is just as genuine as the experience. I just, I mean, I've had that experience too. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, you're looking back to that. There's the everything and the nothing, and both are equally true. And the truth is somewhere between both of them. 
Exactly. Yeah, I like that. I like the way you put that. <laughs> and anyone, I think by the one way, one of the easiest ways that you might be able to, especially in this day and age, um, when you're trying to explain this concept to people in a way that they might be able to grasp, um, most everybody, if they don't have a smartphone, has experience with the smartphone. And it's the same way that you can have multiple apps open simultaneously. And so which one is fact, which one is fiction, which one is real, which one is not. They're just all aspects, you know, they're all fractals of the same whole, the same as we are. And so I think you could, you know, you can philosophize yourself into a very dark space when you start talking about, oh my God, I'm nothing. I'm, no, I'm actually nothing. Or you can, or you can look at the idea that, you know, that nothing is simultaneously something and something very wonderful and something very big. And, um, you know, I think that was what pushed me into all of the work that I do now with frequency, because, you know, the older you get and the more you sit with an experience like this, I remember as my father was, was going through his death process, he just couldn't stand for people to be talking anymore. He would just, <laughs> he would sit and just go, please. And this is before he lost the ability to speak because he was just like, just be quiet just be quiet and for me coming back into a body that had been so you know messed up and coming back in and having all of a sudden these strange abilities that I didn't have you know okay it was strange enough that I could talk to people who weren't physically present and to grow up in that knowledge that that's you know every kid on the block wasn't doing that um it's quite a lonely space to be in to be honest you know you you smile over it and you do this but it's it is quite lonely when you have nobody to speak to about that who can understand what you're talking about without thinking that you're nuts and then the glorious thing with near death comes you don't really care about what people think about you at all because you can't live with that knowing and have any sense of of, of worry about what other people think about you because it's so far out of the scope of what people consider normal that um you could make yourself crazy that way but when I came back in and started recognizing that I had the ability to sit in the space of someone, to touch somebody, and it was like I would see a movie and I could see a mind movie, whether it was in this lifetime or whether it was in a simultaneous existence in some other app that was open, I could see where they left a piece of themselves and their energy. And so we'd talk about this. And then as I got older and I matured and my ego got out of the way and all of these things began to happen. I started recognizing that I was just hearing that same beautiful tone that I was hearing when I was leaving my body. And so thus began all the work that I do with frequency because there is no way to get someone to understand what you've experienced, but there is a way to take them into a space where they can feel what you've experienced. And so with people who come to me, you know, for healing sessions, um, very much so any healer worth their salt, I think is just a glorified window washer. You know, we're just wiping the window clean so that people can find their own way to, to their healing. Um, but I have found that frequency is the best way to do that because it's the way I hear things. I suddenly came back and cancer had a sound. Alzheimer's had a certain pitch. Um, you know, HIV had a tone to it. And so you start hearing these same things repetitively and you start realizing, hang on a second, I can pitch and tone that. And if I can match that pitch and tone, 
if that person is in a space where they are capable of healing, as in this isn't the way that they have designed for them to exit the plane, this was just here for their growth and understanding, then you can assist them through that process. And so it's so interesting to take something that's such a huge unthinkable concept and realize that it's just frequency and light. And if you can, if you can speak that language, it's a language that everybody has. They might not realize it, but once they're introduced to it, once they immerse themselves in it, they just go, oh, <laughs> and there yeah. it is. It's just understood. Yeah. And there's um, this persistent idea that you, people come back from these experiences. And uh, aside from the confusion sometimes, because sometimes there is a lot of bewilderment that comes with this, but the, the message when they are able to figure out what this meant for them, it always seems to relate to helping others. It always seems to be about giving back. Uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, how uh, are you, would you say that this is one of the more prominent um, things that you hear from people's stories is that there's like a positive giving back kind of feeling? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I quickly learned in my psychiatry residency that um, um, everybody seems to be chasing something, right? Like some of my patients were chasing power, some of them were chasing money, some of them were chasing fame. And, um, and I, after a few weeks of this, I went to my supervisor, John Buckman, and I said, you know, John, I've noticed that everybody's chasing something, you know, like what's wrong with me? I'm not chasing anything. And John smiled and he said, now, Raymond, how old were you when you got your first PhD? It's like, I was 23. Well, then how old were you when you got your MD? I was 28. Then how old were you when you got your MD, or, you know, when you finished your MD, you were uh, 31. And so it, while he was going on with this, it dawned on me what he was getting at, that I've spent my life chasing uh, knowledge. And, um, and I think that that's a very satisfactory kind of life. I'm glad I went that path. But uh, everybody's chasing something. But when People have these experiences and this life review. Um, people say that um, they're never again the same. It's like as Howie was how he was saying. It's like he got out of that water knowing that he was not the same person. I just hear that all the time, and I do hear the thing about you say the bubbles of information. Oh I yeah, that described as. Um, Back in the 70s, a lot of people would try to describe that. They would describe it like video cassettes because that was the technology right. that you just absorb this information. Um, mm. When you get over there, apparently there's no more orientation to time and space, but you're, you're oriented to love and information is what I hear. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, this information. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, these are all, you know, the two wonderful guests here i've you know i absolutely i've heard so many accounts of this same nature yeah it changes people completely however i do want to say that it doesn't make them into saints not necessarily uh, george, no <laughs> yeah george ritchie this wonderful man the greatest guy I ever knew george came by my house one day in 76 or 77 just on a 
he was plainly on a mission and he said um he said uh, raymond this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way and what he was getting i've heard this from a lot of people and mm-hmm. basically what he's getting at is let's face it it's hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person right <laughs> and that doesn't go away but it does put people on a pathway to try to work this out. Mm, that, I like the way you put that because it does kind of seem like that same, at least the uh, the video footage that I had seen when I was in probably high school regarding Plato's cave, it shows the man that comes out of the cave and had gone back in trying desperately to explain to everyone. And it, it just shows this man alone on a mountain, you know, in the gray clouds yeah. overhead, which is, you know, kind of a a certain perspective you know it's a cloud that we all kind of have to get through after these experiences and before we continue lindsay Sharman, hi how are you good to have you here i'm really glad to be here thank you for having me i'm sorry if i'm late that's okay that's all right wrong time you know what we've been having crazy time issues like all of us (laughs) so like don't worry about it we're here having the conversation and i would love to get your take and your experiences with the near-death experience or or just the death experience itself and how um how it's inspired your work yeah thank you for asking i'm Sorry, I don't know what you guys have already talked about or how long you've been talking about it. So I don't know how repetitive it will be. But um, basically, when I was very young, I mean, I will guess that I was maybe 14 or so. And a lot of paranormal type things were happening to me at this time, um, increasing in frequency and severity, it seemed. Uh, And one of them I wouldn't understand as a near-death experience for many, many years, but it definitely changed everything for me uh, because it helped me understand a lot about who and what we are as as souls um, that happen to be in bodies and also, you know, about how far-reaching our consciousness can really go and stay incarnated. And so it wasn't the traditional, you know, I didn't fall off a cliff or get in a car accident or anything like that, but I um, had, you know, I guess an out-of-body experience, and I sort of came to awareness having just sort of popped out and not, I've had other out-of-body experiences where I was in my room, you know, I was still in the space that my body was, but this, I was just in an infinite, eternal blackness, Um, and I didn't feel scared at all, but I knew that it was infinite (laughs) and eternal, and I was like, well, this is weird like where do you go here what is there to do here why am I here uh, experiencing this and I saw the tiniest 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 prick of a hint of light so far away so it wasn't the tunnel you know but it was this light and I knew that it was so far away and that I would never reach that but because I I felt that that was like a rule of this place and I am a rule breaker and if you tell me what I can't do I will do that thing and so I was like, mm, I'm going to go right there. <laughs> and so I started like zooming and my experience and people who have had out of body experiences may resonate with that. When you sort of think of a place or you think of going to a place, you're just there. And there's like a kind of a feeling of movement maybe, but it's like pretty quick if you want it to be. That was not true. Like as fast and as far as I could go, just zooming as fast as I could, just never stopping or slowing. This light was just barely getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I could hardly get towards it, but I just kept going. And then I realized that something was not very happy with my choice. (laughs) 
and was like coming to get me but it wasn't nefarious it wasn't like a demon or like a dark thing it was just like it was as though there was a guardian of this place and I was like oh wait what are you doing you're not supposed to be doing this like why are you here so I could feel it coming but I knew um that I was going to keep running anyway or whatever I was doing zooming through this infinite blackness uh, and I finally actually made it to the light but as close as I got to it was in my perception it was a window and it was a window that I could look through, but I couldn't go through. And I came up to it like a, a kid at like a candy store, you know, like, oh my God, what's in there? And I was like looking through and I just saw, I guess what you, I call the golden land. And it was just beautiful, literally golden, like terraces and like hillsides with trees and like fruits and flowing rivers and streams and no people or beings, or at least I didn't perceive any at that time. But I knew that I had been there before and that it was the best experience I had ever had. And I wanted so desperately to go through the window and be there. And that's when the being like grabbed me and was like, you need to go home and basically threw me back in my body. Uh, and I woke up. <laughs> and so at the time I was like, I know this wasn't a dream. I know that if I told people about it, they'd just tell me it was a dream. Uh, this has really like awakened myself to this understanding, like I said, that I actually am a soul. I actually am something conscious that's not this body. And that there's something beyond this, you know, that this life after death or life after before in between <laughs> deaths <laughs> um, exists and that that space is so, so welcoming and beautiful. And so I didn't get to go through the whole life review and, and meeting whatever and these things that other people share of their experience uh, because I wasn't actually dead. I was just zooming through the the space between life and death like a little renegade that's <laughs> purgatory comes to mind in, in a way and not necessarily in a, in a nefarious way like you said because i i had a similar feeling where it, i was almost in like a waiting room of some kind where everything was apparent and there was no movement it was just pure stillness and quiet but it was unbecoming you know it was ever potential may perhaps raw potential maybe um let's switch gears here we, we've heard um i've heard a lot about entities so far right off the bat and whether it's an archetype or uh, a physical entity or how many descriptions can we you know go through but it's interesting because one of the strongest ideas that i've i've uh, heard from other stories and my own is that unbreakable oneness that there is no individual selves but then there's these entities and then there's this idea of a higher self or a higher order and i was just curious what what all of your takes are on this and anyone can jump in save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs> higher order yeah I've, i'm there it's uh <laughs> where i am with this that i um you know i love science 
and at the same time um it's the biggest problems are not yet scientific questions and um so i don't have a way of inferring this but i'll tell you the impression i've developed is that for one of a better term we're in the movies and uh, what i mean by that is that um, you know consciousness is narrative and structure right whenever your consciousness is narrative based whenever you have a new experience in your life what you do is your mind one weaves that into your uh, life story and um cinematographers have discovered i think it's the kulikov principle or something like that that if you present two images randomly selected in sequence a sequence of two images to people just randomly chosen that the mind automatically starts weaving a story to put those two things together. So consciousness is narrative. And um, Elie Wiesel, uh, you guys are, I guess, too young, but he was, when I was a kid, he was the Nobel Prize winner in literature in the 60s at some time. But Elie Wiesel had been to um, Auschwitz. And uh, in one of his books, he wrote this line he said, God made man because he loves stories. And I think that's right. What is your life but your story, right? And um, as I gather, somebody mentioned, I mean, I just, not from, you know, I don't trust the discipline of parapsychology very much. I, I mean, I think this is pseudoscience. It's, it, um, what I say is that as all of you have acknowledged, this is beyond our ability to put it into words, right? Mm. And uh, so you, as uh, you're all very eloquent people, and yet you, you admit, you know, you there are no words for this, right? And I think um, that's where I've come to. I think that I don't trust the parapsychologist. I knew Ian Stevenson very well, and I loved Ian. And I'm not talking behind his back. I would say this to his face. Eben, I mean, um, Ian was had zero critical thinking skills. I mean, as long as you would say something to him that he already believed, and you put it with the footnotes, right? That was uh, enough for him. But I loved Ian. This is not a personal criticism, okay? And um, so I don't trust all that, that stuff, but what I trust is my kids. I have two wonderful kids now grown. Carter is 23, he's Mexican-American by heritage. Carol Ann is a Native American Blackfeet Indian from Montana. She's 20 years old now, but we adopted them at birth. And also my wife and I don't, we don't go to any sort of religious things. My wife and I don't talk about life after death. We talk about the phone bill, what's for dinner, <laughs> which restaurant to go to, okay? And these kids, they found out about life after life by looking me up on the internet. But within that context, both of them described um, previous lives, but in such a way that I couldn't deny that what they were saying was true. I, uh, I mean, it's a long story, but I give up. I give up. And um, so as I gather, we die, we finish up one story, and then we walk off the stage and uh, 
we go through some incomprehensible process. And I gather we're back on another storyline. Mm. And, uh, and Plato said, um, I was thinking about Plato from the beginning. So this popped into my mind. He had this statement in the laws. He said, really, if you think about it, the life of a human being is not a very serious thing. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you know, it's like we can't act that way. We've got to. So he said, we are God's toys. And he said, what we need to do is just play along. And he said, the noblest life is to play at life. And right. I kind of think that it's um, not as serious as uh, religious fanatics tell us by any means. Yeah, there's so, there's so many different uh, rules that one has to follow to uh, live forever or gain eternity. Uh, it seems written into a lot of our of our religions. You know, there's the talk of to escape the wheel of births and deaths, which is an interesting idea. I love what Plato said about that mentality that's telling everybody else that they're going to hell. I'm sorry, <laughs> what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said. And talking about the fund of Christians who were always on his case, he said, heaven for the weather, but hell for the society. <laughs> and I think that's right. I was talking to my Native American daughter about a year and a half ago, and she was saying, you know, Daddy, she said, I want to go to hell. I said, what? I know her well enough to know she something was on her mind. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, at school, there are all these severely religious kids who are trying to convert the rest of us and tell them we're going to hell. And she said, and I, you know, she said, I, I want to be in hell with my friends rather than in heaven with all those stuck up people. <laughs> so I, I told her, I said, Mark Twain, I said, you know, he said, heaven for the climate, but hell, hell for the company. And, uh, <laughs> and she laughed and she said, yeah, that's right. That's perfect. Uh, Mary, you wanted to jump in? I was just going to say, I, I love the concept of the, you know, the fact that it's the stories and I'm always encouraging people, especially when, you know, um, people will come to me for sessions and all, and there's something extraordinary that you hear. And I'm like, write that down, you know, go, go, go do, do a video on that, you know, make a blog, do something because it's the only way that we can actually track because for so long in, you know, in recent history, the idea of sharing something like this was dominated by many, you know, the, of our religious forces. And so I love the stories um, probably next to the near death experience. This was, something that changed my life in a most profound way because it was my own father and as an eloquent speaker um and that's how he was known and as he was deteriorating with alzheimer's he lost his ability to speak so he had been months without the without speech and he was in a nursing home and he was having a particularly bad night and he was pacing. He had horrendous sundowner syndrome and, you know, he had already tried to choke me. He'd punched my mother, the love of his life in the stomach. He dropped his drawers in the hallway. He was just, but he couldn't speak. He could just babble. And the interesting thing that always perplexed me, and he was of course in his, in his right mind, well aware of what had happened to me. And he wouldn't lie down because while he could still speak and he was in that terrified stage, 
he was afraid that if he went horizontal, he was dead. And I thought, how peculiar you've been, you spent your entire adult life preaching about the love of God and this and that, and you, you know, all the parameters of what it meant to you to be a Christian. And yet it fails you as you're going through this process, you're absolutely petrified. And this, this just boggled my mind. And so on this particular night, he was in such a bad way. And all of a sudden he walks over and he gets into bed and he lays flat. And my mother just shoots a look at me and she's like, oh my gosh, is this it? Well, one of the things that was so interesting that was really enhanced after having the death experience was being able to see that field, that auric field, that, that light around people. And the interesting thing is when somebody's preparing to die, it's not like a dimmer switch going down and the light's getting lesser and lesser. It looks almost like a fireworks display. You know, the, the energy is revving up. So I'm looking at my father and I don't see any fireworks. And I'm like, no, mom, I don't think he's dying. He's having an experience. So next thing he's reaching up to the ceiling and he goes, I can see it. I can see it as clear as day. Now we hadn't heard him speak in months. And I was like, Hey dad, you know, what can you see? And he said, the land beyond the river sugar. And it's more beautiful than anything you ever wrote about. (laughs) And so all of a sudden there was my dad, but he is focused and fixed. And he goes, Oh my gosh. He goes, mama's there and she looks so young and then he froze and he was like a deer in headlights and I mentioned earlier on the fact that he had had a uh, or maybe I didn't the a relationship with his father that wasn't great and so as far as my dad's Christian standards went, my grandfather didn't cut the mustard so he didn't make it up he went down and so next thing dad is like oh my gosh daddy daddy's there and he turns to my mother who is speechless because my father's speaking and he looks at her and he goes Helen I've had it wrong all along you can't mess this thing up everybody's welcome there and you want to talk about a mic drop moment I was just (laughs) like, like I've been there I've seen it I've experienced it but to watch someone who had been living within this box their entire life have this sudden and instant and true recognition of what that meant for them. You know, this projection of whatever he thought had happened suddenly dissolved in front of his eyes and that he got to go to his, you know, through his death process that he'd lived long enough to see his truth. And his truth was that he had been living within a set of circumstances that wasn't necessarily the truth. Mm. And it was incredible. That's great. Yeah. Often I've been saying uh, on the show that my psychedelic experience showed me that my uh, ego, inner self, whatever you'd like to call it, was kind of running a conspiracy on me my whole life. And the reason why I put it that way is it, it's like I, I, uh, I've been recently looking into Wu Wei wisdom. If anybody's familiar with those two, they're brilliant. And they, t- they put this all in the frame of the inner child. And it does seem like this inner child is just scared, afraid, and needing to build boxes around us to protect us. And it seems like the, the experience of this inner child process, when people come through that, and get to the other side it's once again we see these same beautiful concepts of 
inner strength and awakening and finding your own true power. And I'm going a little all over the place here, but you know, the idea of simulation theory ties into a lot of these things as well, where you know, I've been interviewing people about the, their paranormal experiences and alien encounter experiences. In that particular field, I don't necessarily believe in all the nuts and bolts stories, or I think there's more to it than that, you know. So I'm seeing a field of occurrences. Uh, maybe psychedelics pull the door open for the brain and allow the eye to see a little further or something. And I just wanted to hear what you guys thought about this. If, Because a lot of the religious texts seem to indicate that there is necess not necessarily an after or a before because there is no time. And that it's really happening here and now. And it's a matter of realization, perhaps. What do you guys think of that? Well, I think this ties back to your question too about sort of if, are there entities or a hierarchy or, you know, what's going on and in that experience that I shared of flying through that darkness towards that light and having that entity that was coming after me, you know, to throw me back into my body. Um, you know, I, I described it as maybe a guardian of that place or something, but I've always thought too, well, it could have done anything then, right? It could have grabbed me before I reached the window. Like it could have stopped me from even remembering it maybe like who knows what, but I've since, you know, also had an experience that I think ties in with whether or not this is like a, a matrix or a trap or what it sort of is. And, you know, I was meditating and I was actually using the HemiSync program, which if anybody hasn't tried it, is a fantastic way to get deeper. Um, yes, the gateway yeah, process, correct? Very Well, they have many, um, mm. but yes, that's one of them. Mm. Um, and it's really effective. And so I was using that and I had this experience for the first time in my life of the the self beyond this self or the beingness that is not this, <laughs> uh, but knowing that that is you and experiencing it finally is again, beyond words. I don't know how to describe it, except that I suddenly was aware that I had always been watching myself play this mm. game of life and that I had always been, you know, uh, <laughs> knowing that that was me, but also getting immersed in whatever the simulation may be or the game or whatever mm. this is between lives and afterlives and during lives. And so that that is like a hierarchy, right? Like this is my higher self, some might say, or my inner self or my truer self, but it's still me, but it's above me and it's beyond me, but I can't always connect with it, but I am always connected with it. And it's just this like circle of paradoxes. Um, and it's, so I don't think it's so much a matrix that we've like, you know, immersed, like plugged into and we're immersed no. in now and we're sort of stuck here. I think it really is more like, this is just where our consciousness, this is the perspective our consciousness is taking right now. And if we want to, it can take any other perspective maybe, but at least that that higher self perspective and really see through it all and know that this is just whatever this is. I think it's kind of dangerous though to say, dangerous might not be the right word, but maybe misleading to call it a matrix because I think people get then in that matrix movie mindset where they're like, oh, it's a trap and I was stuck here by something else and I didn't yes. choose this. And I think that's not true at all i think all of our souls are way more powerful than that and if we didn't want to be here we wouldn't have come here <laughs> so here yeah. we are and it's not a prison sentence you know um your higher self would just pluck you right out if it was it's right it's right there waiting for you to remember it uh, i love Mookie, it i'm sure you've experienced a million people who've come to you and talked about that depression my favorite my favorite people to speak with on the circuit about near death are the ones who had polar opposite experiences you know um to what I had and you hear people talk about 
the absolute despair in the realization and then returning to this. And, you know, I, I watched that in, in absolute awe because I didn't have that experience. And so I find it so valuable to be able to speak and present that dichotomy to people that it's, you know, that it isn't like that for everybody. And that in that despair, though, they still wanted to be here. They still wanted to be um, alive, even though they didn't have the words to say why they chose to come back here. Mm. They just yeah. knew they wanted to be here. And I think that that's quite extraordinary. Um, you know, when, when you look at that and that, that that consciousness is is very aware of the fact that it has fractured itself to come here to experience all these elements of, of who and what we can be. Yeah, I had this, the only way I can describe it is lonely God where and that that was the despair for me which was this idea that i had come to the realization that all was just one consciousness one very lonely consciousness and maybe that was just my fear my frame of reference from the experience or the lack of training because of how psychedelics are usually you know entwined in in young people's lives rather than how they should be you know but there was a lot of fear there for sure and uh, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going with that, <laughs> but anybody can kind of come in. Well, uh, I don't, I don't want to keep uh, top dominating if other people want to speak, but I do, I do relate to that um, despair after coming back from a, another experience in which I was much more being held in my experience of it. I was like literally being held and cradled by God. And it was the funnest, most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. It was the most love I've ever felt. It was just, you know, there was never even a single doubt in my mind that this was so good and so true. And I was like a, that childlike self, you know, I was like, oh, I get to talk to God. Okay. Well, who makes art? Like, is that you? Do you do that? Is all art just you? And he would like laugh at me and be like, yeah, that's me. And you know, we were talking and hanging out, whatever. <laughs> it seems very like I could have asked better questions, but these are the questions I asked because that's what my childlike self wanted to know. And then when I left that and I came back and woke up, I had, I just cried all day long, I, not for joy or happiness, but because this place is so depressing compared to that. And I was like, why would I come back here? Like this is so empty and so heartless and so unloving most of the time, actually. And that was infinite love and infinite goodness and infinite warmth and no doubt and just full confidence and true self, you know, and there was never a shadow of a doubt that I was going to be exactly who I was in that space. But here, you know, you, you do kind of hide yourself sometimes, or I did, especially then, right? And a lot of people do. Um, and I think that's part of that depression and that sadness and that come down from that is when your life you're living isn't very aligned with that, right? You had this experience that is very aligned with that. And then you came back and you're like, well, this isn't that. So since then, I've made a huge number of choices and non-choices and things have shifted so much that I am much more in alignment with that in my daily life and the way I live and how I present myself and what I'm doing in life. And I wonder if I would have as much of a depression if I had that same experience again today, you know, because I am, I am more aligned. And so maybe that's part of that feeling is the depression that we're not living in alignment with it. Right. And we're not, we're, and again, I said trained, like we're not trained for these experiences where you look back in time and it seems like ancient civilizations were 
living this divinity everywhere and through everything. Like the more we find out about the structures that were built and, and how do you can definitely talk to more on, on this and what these structures kind of represented to these people. It seems like it was all about divinity, everything. Like talk about boring, right? You don't have Nike and Reebok and, and this TV show and that movie. It seems like it was all representative of the same geometric truth behind our reality or something. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, you know, I've been lucky. I was lucky enough to, to travel just about everywhere in the world to see these sites and experience them in, in great detail. And one thing that when I get to certain places, like when I'm on the Giza plateau or if I'm on, if I'm at Abu Sir, Dashur, uh, Teotihuacan or a site that, that, that is older than, than just old. Um, I actually feel like I'm touching a different world. I'm actually touching a different universe because the universe, it's like, how would I describe it? It was a universe before an egoic mind. That's the best way I can describe it. And so um, what you're seeing there is, is built, and, and this is something um, Mary's kind of said a few times, it's so much built on uh, geometric principles, on sound frequencies, on on harmonics, on that, in a sense, you don't need to, um, you don't need to add anything to the stone. You don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need to put carvings. You don't need to put pictures. You don't need to paint it. It's the, it's by having them in the exact formation, in the exact shape, in the exact location, in the exact way it's been built with the exact, um, we'll call them for the better term, a magic formula almost, you've created a harmonious, a harmonious energy, a particular energy that will create what the creator wants to create. So if I add one just quick story, and then you guys can go from there. But I'll just, and that's with, and this is with ancient statues that I like to talk, tell these stories many times is that even what an ancient statue can do. So these people think of a statue as artwork, as it's something that looks nice. And of course, uh, when you talk about an ancient Egyptian statue, they're they're built out of they're made out of solid granite, and of course they're made in in they're made perfectly with 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 not only are they smooth but they're geometrically exact. Uh, so uh, I was this is when I was still living in Calgary, and I, um, I they had an Egyptian exhibit, and a number of people asked, could I take them to it and, and show them around the exhibit? And of course, I'd be happy to. And one gentleman had a really bad back, like it was it, the pain was was so bad he had to stop every five minutes and sit down. And there was a statue of Sekhmet there, uh, the lion goddess. And it was, it happened to be, it was just one of the standing ones that had come from like the Temple of Mut. And it, it wasn't in a glass case. So you could, you weren't supposed to touch any of the thing, but you could, you know. So uh, I, I walked this guy behind. I just said, we're going to pretend like we're looking at the back of the statue. We're going to pretend like I'm explaining the carving to you. Just put your hand on the statue and don't take it off till I tell you to. And he just left it there. And we pretended to look at the statue. And about five minutes later, I said, okay, take your hand off the statue his back was fine and he had no problems for the rest of the day and it's these kind of things that when you start when you start experiencing what the ancients created in your in your actual reality and i've got like you know a hundred of those stories you begin to realize that again it's one of these whatever i thought i knew about these people or, or these beings that created this whatever i thought about this time period i know nothing compared to what they know they're they're at a they were at another level that's beyond my understanding. I can only see the effects of what they created. 
You're muted. You're muted, yeah. <laughs> but I'll just say every time I've been lucky enough to go to one of those sites, I've been so upset when I can't just like run up and hug the stone and like touch it, like lay on it. Like I just want to be with it. They don't let you do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Hearing... Ireland. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I'll come there. <laughs> on tap resource. Let me tell you, the energy I felt walking around Giants Causeway was one of the most amazing moments of my life. And back then, I didn't really know what to make of it because I I was a little bit younger. I, I wasn't really too interested in these topics yet. And so I just was overwhelmed. It was amazing. And then hearing the mythology behind it and everything. But um so well, we've got portal tombs here, dolmens, and you know, just down the road, I can go, you know, I'll go buy my groceries and then I'll stop by a 5,000 year old dolmen on the way home and, and just go sit in that space. And, yeah. you know, it's real. There was the one that's closest to my house that somebody went in and cleared, um, the land next to it, um, without permission and like knocked down some very old trees and stuff. And the neighborhood that sits parallel to that, um, two women have gone into psychiatric care and these are just folks. Two women have gone into psych psychiatric care. One fellow fell off the roof last week and uh, broke his shoulder and arm. Um, everyone categorically in the neighborhood is experiencing something massive. And so, you know, coinky dink, I don't think so because it's, it, it's all of them every one of them and it happened concurrently with this destruction that led up to that land that's literally butted up to this five five thousand year old dolmen you know and um just because people don't understand what that was that was for at the time doesn't mean that the power is not existing parallel in some other dimension you know that this mm. idea i think any of us who have had that experience it's all happening at the same time so it's not like oh it's not it doesn't work anymore. Oh, the pyramids, they don't do what they used to do anymore. It's just, you can't see that. Right. Actually, th yeah. that brings me to a question for Dr. Moody, because um, just on this subject we've talked about, and given that you've researched so many people who've had these experiences, I'm just curious, did you run into people who, after they've had whatever experience they had, that they could say, Re, uh, know a language all of a sudden they didn't know before or could could uh, you know see a historical event that the, and, and be able to know the event all of a sudden without uh, you know any understanding I'm curious if there if you have run into stories like that in your oh, in your time I haven't and that's very interesting what you're talking about there is xenoglossia where you talk a language you're not mm -hmm. but in the cases I've had with near-death experiences I've never seen that no okay no. um mm -hmm. It does happen sometimes uh, in the cases of xenoglossia that I know of. Um, and when they trace it back, they've always been able to find some childhood experience where the person knew someone who spoke that language. But I mean, it's pretty startling. It's uh, xenoglossia happens to people, but I, like I said, I haven't seen it with near death experiences. I mean, yeah. way out in left field, I mean, you have children that report past lives as well, too, so yeah. and, certain, and that are, it can be very accurate. And again, it harkens back to that idea that we're, that, yeah, time is some sort of human experience or, or way to manage entropy, but in reality, it's all just happening. And perhaps that experience is kind of no experience at all that 
God or source or whatever we want to call our great consciousness really wants to just sit in all the time. Maybe it's chaotic. Maybe it's, it's easier to, or maybe it's, you know, a double-edged sword where you have to pick the suffering of the three-dimensional world or the chaos of the, I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting idea to play with though. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think we are at the point now where we can have genuine rational enlightenment on this. Um, there are new ways to do this. You can actually prepare yourself in advance uh, so that when subsequently you happen to have a near-death experience, you'll be able to articulate it in a new way. So um, this is coming. It is. It's uh, really interesting. And I, uh, like I said, it's it's kind of awkward for me in a way because I, my, the interests I have that for me, the, the near-death experience has been always a corollary of some more interesting things to me. Now, I mean, how, what could be more interesting than near-death experiences or life after life, right? Nothing. However, in terms of the thinking about it, there are new ways to think about it, which is how I've um, gotten into this. And I think that we're, uh, we're going to be in a new world within the next few years on how to think about these things. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys think it's kind of like going to be a snowball effect where, I mean, I feel like we're seeing it already anyway. People are at least opening up more to ideas that they never had before. It does seem like it might be like a landslide perhaps soon. I, I suspect so. Yeah. Mm. I feel like that's part of the friction and the tension that we have going on now is this um, mass delusion and this mass psychosis is uh, death, death throes. Like mm. it doesn't want to let go. And uh, you gotta be also, scared. You gotta be, come on, stay scared. Right? Yeah. And there's no, you know, there's the lack programming or the non-abundance programming and the scarcity programming. Like that's all it's all built into the same psychosis and delusion. And I really, I think we're all opening up the way by just being who we are and sharing our ideas and sharing our experiences. And guys, I gotta say, I'm very embarrassed about this. Really, I'm so embarrassed, but I should explain that yesterday I had my, yesterday evening, I had my booster, my third COVID shot. And I'm just, I don't want to scare anybody. It's, it's just normal. It's like you, like you feel kind of bloated for a couple of days. And I'm feeling terrible. <laughs> I just, I mean, I hate this because this is so fascinating. But um, I'm just really chilly. And I, I was earlier, I was lying in the bed to this. And I, I feel like I'm going to have to go back lie down. And I'm just so sorry because it's just the, you know, the mild side effects of this. But it's you know it's it's uh, intrusive no problem so, uh, no problem we understand. Yeah, we okay understood. i'm just and so it's, embarrassed about it's, this it's such so an sorry. honor thank yeah, you yeah, it's, it's been a great, great honor to have you, you. likewise Absolutely. you guys are so great and like i'm just so embarrassed i don't think i've ever had to don't be embarrassed because it's my bedtime <laughs> here in ireland anyway <laughs> hey, there always needs to be an organic trigger to get things rolling down thanks again david am i just 
Thank you all so much. And yeah. I am going to go because I'm not feeling my best. No May problem. I, this is Thanks, just so fascinating. May I Hope send you I'll a, you a blessing? Would that be okay with you if I send you a blessing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Raymond, so, thank, you, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with us. We really appreciate it. I just love this. I just wish I could. I was feeling better because I am going to go lie down now. Please do and feel better, okay? I will. It's just the side effects of the vaccination. So. That's right. Everybody, Dr. Thing. Raymond Moody. <laughs> Thank you all Thank so you. much. And yeah, well, guys, we don't have to go on forever, but I mean, I'm having a good time. Are you guys having a good time <laughs> talking about death? Hell yeah. <laughs> I feel embarrassed for that. So. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. You know, you just, that was almost an hour ago at this point, you know, time flies. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I don't know where we could specifically go from here, but I, I do like the what we're talking about in the sense that these, uh, these interesting experiences that a lot of us have had seem to tie in to all of what the religions of our world seem to say when you have eyes to see it. You know what I mean? Uh, are you guys familiar with Ram Dass's work? at all um he dealt mostly with psychedelics but of course he took off to india and you know which most people did and to connect to that meditative culture to do it without the substances so maybe once again that's more proof that this is just our innate ability and perhaps we're all slowly becoming more and more aware of it you know yeah <laughs> no i think i think small groups of people are becoming aware of it i think i think you're going to see more and more robots mm. you're well, going so, to, you're, yes you are you are you are going to see actually you're probably starting to realize that a large majority of what you thought have been humans to this point are not even humans at all and that, that you're looking at uh, almost like non-player characters of a video game and and that are there just to populate the world to make you think. I mean, that this is a, this is a world uh, now. After all of my experiences and, and what I've done, is is a, is um, all, all that I can say that I would say is true. That I could say is truthful about this place is that we've been trained to misperceive. So I know that whatever I'm perceiving is not really what's here. Whatever's going on is not what's really going on. It's what I've been trained to perceive. It's what I've been trained to piece together and now I've come to realize that it's just it's just the way my um, my system is putting the energetic structures or whatever you want to call is going on here in a way that it's it, it seems like something's happening but um, that's not so what's what happening at all showing up yeah so it's uh, so it, it, it leads and when you when you look at the world that way you begin to see that it's it's not always <laughs> everything isn't as rosy as, as you might want it to be. Uh, everything isn't as bad as others might want it to see. Again, everything is somewhere in between everything else. And the challenge is not to fall on one side or the other, I found, is how can you stay in that midpoint between two anythings? And it's in the midpoint that you find the power and the, and the, and the, and the sight somehow, that as soon as you drift to one side, you're already moving into the realm of yin and yang and the one and zero and the you're in duality again. It's very, it's so tricky. It's so, it's so tricky to how it catches you again. Path is narrow, right? Yeah. This is yeah. why I started my show called The Middle Path is that exact same, that exact principle. Right. And I think and that, a, that line yeah, a, is 
minuscule. Right. It's that it's that Richard Rose principle, right, where he talks about because he, he calls this this power betweenness. Because if you put those two magnets at the at the exact distance, that middle point between the two magnets will have infinite power, and and that that was his point. So if you can be between anything, which to him the greatest betweenness would be between life and death. So if you can get in the space between life and death, you now have the power of everything. But I realized, oh, you're supposed to do this with every single thing in your life. Yeah, just like you said, what's the what's the middle point between everything? How do I stay centered there? It's again this idea of transitions. Have you guys heard? Uh, so this is more towards the paranormal side of things, but paranormal instances seem to occur more often when things are in transition when a remodeling project is going on um the interesting dolman story where trees were getting ripped out of the ground and everything was being excavated it does seem like i don't know is it as above so below is it because the transition itself from life to whatever is beyond is a transition so maybe that is mimicked in a fractal way in our lives or something i think it's exactly what howdy just said is that liminal space somewhere right in the middle is the infinite the infinite mm. is there and so that energy can be released or accessed more easily in that at that point uh, but if we're often living in some other version or some extreme or even just close to the middle but not quite maybe we're not able to access or experiencing those things as easily. Yeah, maybe that's why uh, stillness is always so important to these practices and trying to get there. It's stillness, it's quiet or repetition even to try to, maybe that's to, <laughs> I often think of it like being a parent with my child and, and having to repeat things to that, you know, that repetition creates new neurological pathways. And it seems like that's a, once again, it's, it's repeated over and over again in our experience. It's really cool. Well, mm. it's been really great having you guys. Um, I don't know where to go from here. I'm out of questions per se, but I mean, I love this topic and, and uh, I'm sure I'm going to think of nine other things we could have, uh, could have discussed afterwards, but that's the whole point of it. Again, it's fractal, right? <laughs> so is Mary still there or did she go to sleep? I don't she know. Dropped did we out suddenly, so maybe her something yeah, she might. Yeah. I think it's just the three of us. It might be. I I, I wish it's we could like, get and her it's back like, to it's the just, it's I haven't said hi. It's nice to see Lindsay again. I haven't yeah, seen her hi. in about six months, I guess, the last yeah. time we did our talk together, I think. Something like that. So, I would love to have yeah. you back on again sometime, too. It's nice to see you as well. Thanks. Yeah. And, and, I, I can, really can I, and I'd like to ask Lindsay a question then, since you don't have one. I have one for her. And that was your experience. Uh, the one you talked about is so interesting to me because um, I've come to see that there's there's two almost like there's two possible roads you might take in, in, a, in a deep after death experience. One is the tunnel of light, which is where everyone tends to be drawn to. And then there's into the void of the nothingness, which is often described to me as, but at the end of it, there is this tiny speck of light at the end of the, and so I'm curious, when you were in the space of the nothingness, did you find that the, the nothingness was heavy? Did you find it was difficult to move? Or were you just, well, you were just, uh, in a sense, you saw the light, you saw where you were, you were clear, and you just knew it was difficult to get to, but did you notice a, like a weight or a heaviness or a, 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 anything like that while you were there? No, that's a great question, and I have never heard that that, <laughs> this is the second time I've heard anything that my experience is even 
something that other people have experienced. So I like hearing about this, but it mm. wasn't heavy, so to speak. It wasn't like I was slowed down or like, you know, in dreams when you're trying to like fight or punch mm. someone, you just like, it's like taffy. It wasn't like that at all. It was just that there was so much nothingness. So when I, when I've had out of body experiences since, like I said, I can just zoom and be anywhere I can be, I don't even have to move really. I can just think of a place and I'm there, right. There's almost no in-between time, but in that space, that was not true. And so my Mm. feeling and my understanding was just because there was so much of it. Mm. (laughs) And I think of like, you know, if we're like, for some reason, the atomic structure comes to mind. And if our consciousness is like a little electron and it can like jump out to new shells, every once in a while, right? And we're still in the same structure, but we're just kind of playing around with like where we can be. And there's some electrons that then like jump off completely, free radicals. Oh, weird. I think that was Raymond Moody's dog. Oh my, I think I'll <laughs> mute Raymond. I guess he didn't sign off. He's still with us in spirit. Yeah. Yeah. That dog's like, I want to jump off the electron shell too. Yeah, man, uh, I got something to say. <laughs> but I feel like that when that electron jumps off, there would be infinite space between it and the next shell or the next atom or the next whatever. And it would seem so far away, right? Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though to us, it's so small. I wonder if that's what people are getting wrong about all this multiverse stuff. You know, it's just different perspectives or, you know, reality itself. If we're putting consciousness as central, then maybe other realities are literal, but it's just consciousness. It's not this multiverse necessarily. Like, how do you? Well, there's, there, here comes the next death experience then since we're doing, Mm. we're doing death experiences. So this one will lead to what you just said. And that was, this one happened to me in 1999. And um, so I'm maybe two years into my intense work. I'm still not, haven't gone deep, deep, but I've gone deep enough. And I, I just had gone, I'd, I'd been on a bachelor auction date is actually what, what had happened the night before. You know, it was, uh, it was something for, I think, breast cancer research. So you can't say no when they ask you to be a part of it. But the date was horrible. Like th- this woman was a, a complete drunk and, and it, was, it was frightening to even be on the date with her. And the next day I was walking on the street. The date was um, May the 5th. And I was walking on the street and I was replaying the conversation with her that had happened the night before. We often do that. You know, you have a a challenging thing and you replay it again in your mind. And she asked me a question. She said, why are you doing all this spiritual crap anyway? And I I left some answer to her that was, you know, that was nice at the time. But in my mind, the answer came on the street because if I didn't, I would be dead now. And at that second, the, 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 where I was walking on the street was gone. It disappeared. And I was standing on a roadway and there'd been a car accident. There was a truck and I, I had smashed into a car. And I remember seeing that the, there was like, like steam and, and a little bit of smoke, but not fire. The truck driver was standing there. He was pretty shaken up, but he was kind of like just in shock. I looked into the car. There was a woman with like dark uh, brown hair and and she was injured but I could tell she was still alive then I noticed there was a third car turned over in the ditch so I, 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 I kind of I, you know I, I feel like I'm here I'm at this experience so I went over sort of drifted over to the car to see who was there and I realized there was a person in the car and they were dead and then I realized the person was me and I realized too at that moment I died in an alternate reality that this was, this was a very clear moment that I was having the experience of my own death 
in another reality. And in this snapback moment, again, like I talked about the other experience of this download, well, this download came of the realization that there's a million me's, 10 million me's living 10 million experiences because it made complete sense. If the spiritual traditions, or at least Eastern traditions are correct, that one of the things God or whatever the creator has done is to have into infinite experiences, well, why would they give one life to one creature? You're, you're, you, you've had very limited experience then. You would want to have 10 million lives with the same shell because then you would have all possible experiences. It made complete sense that yes, there must be 10 million me's. Every time I make a choice, there's another me that's taking the other choice. It's going a completely different direction. And two things came from that from me. Of course, one was the breaking down of how real reality is then if there's 10 million me's and 10 million worlds. But it was a sense of, could I, well, all the mistakes I think I've made can't be mistakes because in another reality, I did the opposite. I did something right. And everything I did right here, I did wrong in another reality. So it's something I can share that if someone, you know, went in the burning building and couldn't save the child, you can remind them, but in the other reality, you must have, you, you must mm. have saved them in that. Or if you saved them in this one, you didn't in the other one. So that, that was one thing that came out of it, this, this idea of, everything has to be in balance somehow, even if it looks out of balance here. And then the other was a dropping of massive self-importance because I couldn't think I was so great because I knew whatever I did well here, I did, I, I failed miserably in somewhere in some other life. Um, so that experience, I think, just ties into what you just said. And, and so revealed this, this, um, this, this normal view I had had of this reality of just this, this is the only thing here, and this is what I'm basing everything on. And once I could step back from the experience and realize there's millions of these, it, it opened up doorways of exploration and, and things were verified from outside sources beyond just my experience. But that was, that came from that one. That's really interesting. It's super oh. freeing. They're like, yeah, I can do anything. <laughs> yeah. Also, it made me think of something that that Raymond was saying about drama, about how it's like, OK, this spiritual notion, it's like it's all happening. Right. It's all happening. But let's put ourselves through the drama each and every time. It's almost for it, it must be some form of subconscious entertainment. You know what I mean? For our yeah. souls, perhaps. Right. So the great trick is what happens when you decide to stop being an actor and go sit in the audience and just watch the play mm. to no longer act in the play to just decide I know it's a play and I'm not going to be a part of it anymore. I'm just going to watch it. And everything changes when you do that. And there's this. Sorry. Oh, well, go ahead. It's very silly, but there's this eastbound and down moment. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that. But oh, it's yeah. a very silly, very lowbrow sort of show. And uh, he, there's a moment where he's screaming and yelling and, and he's like upset. And, and, and then they're kind of like, dude, why, why are you freaking out? Like you need to calm down. He's like, well, I, I know. And I love you guys very much, but I can't stop screaming right now. And I'm really mad, but I don't want to be. So I'm just going to keep yelling to save face. And I'm going to turn around and walk away now and like walks away. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like that sometimes I feel like there's a part of me that gets it a lot of the time. And then there's moments where I fall back down and I'm like, playing out a drama and then another part of me is like hey you're doing that thing like you could stop now and I'm like right. yelling or something in the moment I'm like dude just stop yelling now I'm like chill out <laughs> but this is one of my best scenes yeah right. and it's just that right. like we were talking about like where's your perspective at and in any given moment and to have multiple perspectives at once is like kind of jarring um, but I right. think the more we can have that in the moment itself 
the more we can start to change and shift because it's all just patterns. You know, there's something about this reality that has inertia and the patterns have inertia. And I think that's what some people call karma, you know, and they just, this is what you always do. This is how you react right. to that. And this is how you've planned it. And that those neurons we were talking about that they get like deeper each time. Um, yeah. But in the moment is when you can kind of switch and make a new neuron, neuronic neuronal pathway, <laughs> uh, you know, and start a new thing, step back yeah. a bit. Yeah, like I've done the last two videos I've happened to do on my channel have all been about the simulation, how, mm. how the world is a simulation and what that might mean. And of course, one of the things that if, if reality is a simulation, uh, it's, it, it, you can only program so many things. You can't program infinite. You can only program a lot. So if we're living in a simulation, that would have to mean you're going to see things repeating many times again. So to me, if you're seeing a lot of patterns happening again, I, I know that the psychologists try to present this as a way of it's, uh, oh, it's your mind. It's, it, you know, there's always an explanation, but the explanation, but if it's a simulation there, you have a, only a certain amount of choices. Anyway, you're going to, those patterns are going to have to repeat. So if you're seeing repeating patterns, it's another possibility that we're in some form of simulation and uh, it leads right back to what you just said of, you know, there's, it's, we maybe only have so many emotional choices because we, we don't, we, that's all we've been given. <laughs> yeah. They say we can't, I mean, we can only experience what we remember, right? We can only picture what we remember or, or memory is, is knowledge. Memory is learning. It's all this past idea of taking from what we already have and putting it onto what we know now or what we're seeing. It's interesting and speaking, oh. yeah, what? <laughs> speaking of memory i was going to ask you um if that pod you're talking about something like you've experienced the pod before or between lives and i was going to ask you if that felt like a like a memory or did you somehow experience it from some other perspective or you know what i mean was that me yeah oh a pod uh, i'm sorry i'm Maybe you didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> i thought um, you were saying you remembered sort of like the waiting room or I oh yes the way okay, yes okay yeah, yes the way okay so can you ask <laughs> so what did you sorry. want to know about the waiting room it's Some right. people call it pods, and i was just talking to people who call it pods so my brain just said pods to me when you said waiting room but very matrix like were... <laughs> the pods <laughs> yeah true um <laughs> when you experienced that, were you experiencing it? And if so, was this like a memory you were having or was it some other perspective? Like it's a different being or? Yeah, so it's almost like, okay. So I also was in a fight a long time ago and got choked out. And the first memory that I came back to was an infinite stream of my voice, just like information. And I came to hearing it like I was listening to a radio almost. Um, I don't know how that really ties in, but that, waiting room felt like I had been there always and it's always happening a, a very weird feeling another friend of mine on psychedelics once had this revelation that oh we're all tripping you guys don't even know that you're not tripping right now we're all we're all tripping and it's it reminded me of that same feeling like okay he's in that place he's in that place that is undeniable and it's like you realize oh we're all there we're all there and we're just I don't know, being shown a firework and this person's being shown a broom and, you know, every experience is different, but we're all this base thing or not even no thing, perhaps no thing at all. And this idea, just to bring it back to simulation, I'm curious because I haven't looked too far into your particular take on simulation, but my understanding of what's being put out there 
for the most part in the public eye and maybe this is a little psyopy i don't know but to me it always seems like people are portraying it as future humans with future technology running ancestry programs to me that seems like saying aliens they're going to come here with weapons that they hold in two hands and they're going to take over smaller nations because that's what we know it's we personalize it so much and maybe we don't have to do away with the word simulation but i feel like people's perception of that word is tied into the matrix imagery so much where it's computers it's more of us it's more of this beautiful future that these lovely people are trying to lead us into it's tech 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 physical tech possibly in my opinion to distract from the natural and which it's almost like it's all there naturally but there's a force trying to put it out here synthetically and that this simulation theory is truly happening, but it's more of a state of being state of consciousness rather than this machine idea, this Terminator idea almost that keeps getting put out there. And I'm just curious what your thoughts on all that, the tornado of thoughts I just shared was. <laughs> Children, really, do you oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm really on the natural side of things. So I feel like, you know, the, I feel like there's there's ether and then and then it forms it comes out of formlessness and the infinite energy state and the infinite darkness or whatever it is into form and it's plasma and then it kind of condenses more and it's um you know gases and then it's i whatever liquids and then it's solids or whatever maybe i just messed that up but you know there's like a hierarchy of 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 states of matter and i feel like that's actually what's happening and that the matrix or the simulation that we are experiencing here is is a natural state and that you know what precedes form is sound in a lot of religions and i feel like that's saying the exact same thing is that there was nothingness and then it became something and that that automatically that waveform that came out like it makes these structures and as they grow and change and interact with each other they make these structures and our, you know, human body even is like a sound wave form that they were shaped like this because it is exactly the representation of whatever sound wave idea or, you know, formlessness takes form in us. Um, and that that's all very naturally occurring and our consciousness is traveling through that system in whatever ways it can or chooses to or wants to experience or however we want to look at that. And I do think that that's an inversion to think that there's this nefarious construction of a matrix and that it has grabbed us and put us into it and that we are trapped there i think that's what they would love to do but mm. i don't think that that's actually happening yet but i think it could happen <laughs> maybe that's where we're leading with neural link being just a baby just the beginning of lord knows what might happen you know yeah again i think the challenge like you say is the word i, I mean I, I mean i'm used it I, I mean okay i've talked about it in the two videos but simulation automatically like you say implies what you're implying i think for me the word means or what i wanted to try to get across is just that it's saying um that this world is a cop the reality we know is just a copy of something else mm -hmm. i'm just saying it's a copy what the, what that copy is and how it's created and how it's manufactured that's up to question uh just that um you might say we're not we're not in an original we're in a copy of something else and so the the, te the the test becomes how can you tell the difference between an original and a copy this is kind of one of the ideas and can you tell if 
if um, if this thing started at a, had a particular start date, could you be able to tell the difference between what would be something, what were things that would be happening after this, a simulation was running and what would be something that would just be like in, in Westworld would be a robot's backstory that never really occurred in this, in our, in our experience, but just was there uh, to make it look like there's been a history. And that's kind of, you know, without trying to get into the technical jargon of it, it was just the concept of, could we dissect our reality a little bit? Is there ways we could dig into the experience we have on a day-to-day -day basis to try to determine, is it as one-off as we think it is, or is it, is it, is it had somehow, we'll call it a construct, but not trying to say what the construct is, because like you just said, as soon as you start trying to label it in technological terms, then people put it into what they know, and already then you've probably lost whatever it is we're really we re we're really experiencing because we're using the wrong uh, the wrong language to figure it out. Language is always wrong. It's never you can so, never use it perfectly. Yeah. That's part of why I love it and hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's coded too. It's crazy. You know, yeah. language is. I had this wild wild experience from psychedelics where I came out sounding like a crazy person saying I found a hidden story inside of language all language and I don't I still haven't figured any of that out but maybe it was an internal story or something but it is it goes back to that drama idea that script I even had an idea maybe it's a bunch of us in a writer's room you know because I mean some of it does feel like oh my god and then they'll think this so we'll take them down this way. They'll never know, you know, just <laughs> writing in the twists and turns to our own incredible experiences, maybe, you know, as a fun group. But um, this this has been awesome, guys. I really appreciate you joining me. And Thanks. it's too bad I can't say bye to Mary. She disappeared. But yeah. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, I would, please, uh, Howdy, please tell my audience where they can find you. Ah, yeah, I, I guess I'm still, my YouTube channel is still running for now. We don't know how long that will continue, but that's Howdy McCoskey Talks. Um, there's other things that are going on to freevoice.io from the video side. Uh, if you type in my name, you'll find uh, the books on Amazon, and then you can from there track them to wherever other place you want to buy them from. Of course, you don't have to buy them from there, but that's a place to see them. Uh, my website is uh, the really stupid sounding name. I don't know why I chose it. Egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. Google <laughs> search my name and it'll be easier than trying to remember my website. Um, and yeah, and then I guess now that we've connected again, I guess maybe Lindsay and I on her channel will have another chat at some point and maybe you'll see me there again soon. Excellent. And it's been, it's been great to have you, man. I really appreciate your perspective and I would love to have you back for a talk, not about death, about other things. Cause I know that you, we could go the distance with Egypt too. And so that would be great. And Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. And I, and Lindsay's going to be joining us for the fourth edition of the witness, which is severely focused on psychedelics. And that one will be fun too. So Lindsay, <laughs> please tell the audience where they could find you if they don't already listen. Yes, thank you so much for having me again. I wish I was here for the whole thing because I, I missed a lot of Dr. Raymond Moody and, and all of you guys talking. And so, but but I really appreciate it. I'm honored and humbled to be in such awesome presence as all of you. Uh, and I am excited to have Howdy back on Rogue Ways, which you can find still on YouTube also somehow uh, for now. Uh, I'm doing much shorter little chunks there. And then I jump over to Rockfin only because uh, we can talk freely there and say whatever we want. How do you should get on Rockfin? You, and Andy, are you on? 
<laughs> I'm not on. No, I am not. So okay, that would well, that both, would be a good idea. <laughs> you both should get on Rockman as soon as possible. And if you want to, I will I will do that like right after the show and try to get try to get that in the works if you're into it. Cool. Yeah, I'm into it. Absolutely. More places to share the word, of share course. the love. Hell yeah. And to be free and say free. what you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you can find me on rockfin.com slash rogueways too uh, on any podcast app and on my site, rogueways.org, where there's all kinds of stuff. Um, and howdy, actually, I just changed my domain name because it was Corey Sharman, which is my writing author's pen name. Right. And I changed it to rogueways.org and it was not hard. So maybe your tech people can get that going if you want. Well, actually, I've got, a, I've got a new one on the go. It's exitfromthecave.com. Ah. Oh, I love beautiful it. Name. It's That's a awesome. yeah, beautiful name. And I'm just, eventually everything will move over there and that will become my website. But it, because there's nothing there now, there's no point anyone going there. You're not going to see anything other than but well, uh, isn't it it's a good name isn't it it is it's great it's great all right everybody well thank you so much for joining me and we'll see you next time thanks for listening to this episode of the deep share podcast if you want to hear more then hit that subscribe button follow me on all the social places and remember think for yourself but don't always believe what you think till next time Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>